Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hi, everyone. I hope you have been learning a lot from the series on sibling abuse. Uh, Whether or not you've listened to the previous episodes, I think you can gain a lot from this episode in regard to getting an understanding of the lived experience by hearing a survivor story. So I'm here today with Anne, and I'm using a pseudonym to protect her privacy because she is going to share a very vulnerable part of herself. So before you meet her, let me introduce her background. Anne is a psychotherapist with 40 years experience as a clinical social worker. She received her MSW from Washington University with a concentration in family systems and clinical work, and she's been in private practice for 30 years, working with children, adolescents, adults, and families. She's generally a psychodynamic practitioner, but she also works from a family systems lens, and she's worked from many different approaches, including CBT, DBT, EMDR, and somatic trauma. I am so grateful to you and as a guest today, and I think that there is nothing like a personal story to bring awareness to the sibling abuse experience, and I think it's incredibly brave of you to share yourself with us, so thank you for being here, and I'm going to ask that we start at the beginning, uh, the beginning of your story. So can you tell me who's in your family and how this dynamic of sibling abuse began? Okay. Thanks, Amy. My pleasure. So I come from a family of five, and I have two brothers. I'm the only daughter. I have a, a brother who's two years older and one who is seven years younger. And my parents were together until they divorced when I was in my 20s. This dynamic, from my perspective, of of kind of the setup for how the sibling abuse started, began at birth, maybe even before I was born. And I just want to just jump forward Briefly, just to say that I didn't recognize this sibling abuse until until maybe I was 50. Even though, Mm. 50, yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though when you hear my story, it's so clear. My brother, who was two years older, my mom was very bonded with 
And she was afraid that having another child would impact her bond with her first child. And my mother developed postpartum depression when she was pregnant with me. And that postpartum depression continued after I was born. When I was a few months old and my brother less than three, my mother was hospitalized. And at that time, people were hospitalized for six months. It was long hospitalization. Mm -hmm. And so right there, my there was a lack of bonding that I had with my mother. There was my brother who lost his mother when I was born. And symbolically and lost. Yeah. Symbolically lost um, because she was out of the out of the picture. Mm-hmm. I guess we had different caregivers at home to help out. My dad was working, but my dad also did not was having a difficulty dealing with the stressors and was also having affairs that my mom knew about. So it was it was a traumatic beginning of my life and I'm sure traumatic to my my brother. So my when my mother came home she was not emotionally stable and she took her anger out at me. And I could just be there doing nothing or walking by. And I remember my mother sometimes saying, oh, it's you. Yeah. Yeah. So let me understand, because you're saying when she had you, she was hospitalized soon thereafter for postpartum depression. And now it sounds like you're fast-forwarding a little bit to, I don't know if you're a toddler or how old you are at this point that you remember, you have these memories. Okay. I I think I was about three or four months old when she was hospitalized. Okay. And she was hospitalized because she couldn't get rid of the thought of wanting to kill me. Now, how did you learn of this story? This is a good question. I've known it a long time. I knew it since a teenager, at least. Okay, so it was told to you, either by your mother or your father or a sibling? Right. Okay. Right. My mother might have even told me this story. Mm -hmm. And so she was gone for six months. And we had, there were different caregivers. And so she came back into my life when I was about, I don't know, eight months old, nine months old. I I don't know what was going on. There was conflict between my parents, clearly, and disconnection. And, And that kind of fueled into anger towards me that my mother had. And my brother, I I later learned, felt like he was carrying out my mother's wishes towards me by being aggressive to me. He felt that, you know, he saw my mom being angry at me and he wanted to be in good graces with everybody. And he began hitting me. When I was, I, I, 
I would say by two years old, I was being hit. Mm. Mm. They were called 50 megaton crampers. 50 megaton crampers. 50 megaton crampers. I don't know what that is. That well, that was that was what my brother called them. Oh, I'm gonna give you a 50 megaton cramper. Oh, and what I was I was prey. It uh-huh. was didn't come out of a fight. It was he felt like giving me a 50 megaton cramper. I was bruised. He would hit me, and he would hit me with his fist. And sometimes it was more than one, and it was several times a week that I would be hit. And my parents knew that this was happening. My mother was not able to set limits or or protect me. My dad knew that this was happening. And my dad's way of dealing with this, which was going to say like looking back like crazy your brother hit you I want your brother to know what it feels like to be hit and so you have one hit to give your brother oh my goodness and so of course my brother looked at me like if it hurts just watch out because you're going to get it Mm -hmm. and you're going to get it worse and so I recall giving these soft hits. And I felt like I, because my dad was there watching, I felt like I needed to, I'm a kid. What a position to be in. Yeah, I'm a kid. So I did what my dad told me to do. Thinking back, I wonder whether my dad got pleasure from that in some weird way. Mm-hmm. Because how could he not know? He's a smart man. What he was creating? What mean? he was creating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or that, that I later asked, I'm skipping ahead just briefly. Um, my brother, did did um dad ever talk to you about what was right or wrong? Did he ever talk to you about like hitting not being okay? And my brother said, this is me later. Mm -hmm. And and my father never talked to my brother about hitting not being okay and never took him aside to talk with him about, you know, those. Well, why would he take him aside when he, and to talk to him about hitting is not okay when he's uh, inducing it? My father. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's where I wonder, like, what was my dad getting out of this, Mm -hmm. looking back? Mm -hmm. So it continued at at least for 10 years, maybe longer. Uh It was also tickling. It was tickling me until I was in pain. And I was, like, screaming to stop because it hurt so much. He tackled me and tickled me. And I don't remember any parent being around when that happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that the idea of tickling, I think uh, a lot of people don't understand how sadistic that can be 
when it becomes so uncomfortable, it's not playful and the child or person, anybody in life is um, the target of that tickling, it's found very amusing and it's actually very, very painful psychically and physically. And we underestimate the intensity of a tickling episode when it goes beyond just fun play. Right. And especially it didn't start as fun play. It started as a tackle. And you're absolutely right. It's really painful. And it's a power over. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't I didn't have power. I mm-hmm. was stuck mm-hmm. until I could kind of sort of get out of that grip. And and then I would go away. And with the hitting, the 50 megaton crampers which became my brother's pet name for them. Those continued, as I said, up into my teens. Maybe by high school, they stopped. And I stopped telling my parents. You know, my dad, it clearly wasn't going to do anything. My dad wasn't going to protect me. Having that one hit was silly. That's a perfect example of what I've talked about in other episodes on the series about this idea of a double whammy is not only your closest peer, your sibling abusing you. And so, yes, that hurts physically, of course, but also psychically. And then the double whammy is that your parents are either witnessing this and not protecting you or aren't aware of this and aren't protecting you. Or in your situation, as you said, your father is attempting some odd way of protecting you by getting some revenge, which only comes back to, you know, intensify the experience for you later from your brother. This is the real mismanagement and neglect of parental caregivers in this situation. So you're really highlighting that and it's just an awful experience. Yes, it is. Yeah. And if I had protective parents, Mm -hmm. it likely wouldn't have continued or gone on as it did. So do you remember how this emotionally took its toll on you or what you were experienced throughout these 10 years of this day in and day out, or as you said, several times a week, and there being no propelling factor, nothing that you could identify that like, if I do this, then I'm going to get this response from my brother. It's part of the not knowing, the not knowing, never being able to I was like, as I said, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I never knew what was going to happen. And it was like, pray. I, we might have been in different parts of the house. And it was like, I'm going to come and get you. And it was like fun on his part. It was not fun on my part. Where were your other and siblings it, during this time? Well, my other sibling was seven years younger. Okay. So he really wasn't in the picture or was too young. Okay. Although there was there were power dynamics that he experienced as well from this brother so let's go back to the emotional toll do you remember what that experience was like yeah i remember i didn't feel safe at home i didn't feel safe at home at all i didn't know what my when my brother was going to come at me i didn't know when my mother was going to erupt at me And then my father sort of, and I'm going to say, pretended 
to be my protector because he saw the, he acknowledged and saw the mental health issues and abuse from my mother. I don't know how much he saw from my, or my brother, he just seemed ineffective. But then my parents would end up having an argument about me because my father and mother would then end up in conflict about how I was treated. And so it was awful. And I, I hid. I would take refuge, luckily I had my own room, and I could close the door. And one of the things that was really helpful for me was, I guess, especially as I got closer to, I don't know, eight, 10, I would put music on and I would dance in my room. And I still, to this day, I do embodiment work with dance. Mm -hmm. And I find that that's where my body is at home and my body holds information um, and it's an incredible healing practice. And Wonderful. it was healing. It helped me get through my childhood. I'd wow. close the door and I would I would just I, I would just dance. But then there were also times that I would be hiding in corners and depressed, really, really dark places. I in middle school, I know that it was still happening. I wrote dark, dark poetry. And um, the guidance counselor at the school was concerned about me for the darkness of my poetry. Did, were your parents alerted by the guidance counselor? No. No. So the concern no. was just directed towards you. I'm concerned about you. Yeah, I'm concerned about you. Mm -hmm. I, now, I'm very careful about this question because I hate to place responsibility on the victim of abuse. But I'm wondering if you told your guidance counselor what was happening with you at home. No. No, right. I don't know. I don't know. I still, I wonder, like, why was I so quiet about it? Why didn't I tell people that this was happening? Why didn't I and, and I, I had friends. I didn't have a developed sense of self at that time. So you were and completely was, alone with this. I was completely alone with it. I may have shared it with friends, but I may have shared it with a twist of my brother's playfulness. I'm going to get you and you're going to get a 50 megaton cramper. Boom. Right. So I'm I'm assuming that there's a couple of reasons for this, not that I know your story exactly and what was going on with you internally, but from what I understand, one, there's a sense that, well, first of all, it's not considered a social phenomenon at that time, right? It's still, right. It's still make, trying to make its way into being regarded as a social issue, but mm -hmm. it wasn't on the radar at all. So right. I don't know, one, if you had the terminology, two, if you were to say that, if anybody would really take it seriously, because just be looked at as normative sibling rivalry. And also, I assume that there would be, you felt that there would be repercussions for you, that if you were to kind of expose your family in this way, there was such intense negativity in your family structure where this kind of behavior was 
silently promoted in a way. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah. That you didn't maybe think that there would be any possible way of getting help. And I think that another angle is that there's a lot of shame connected to, to this, that there must be something that you are implicitly doing to warrant this kind of treatment, which is why I'm so careful in saying, you know, did you tell, yeah. like, I don't want that to be no, but that's a uh, interpreted, good question. right? But I don't even want the audience to interpret that in some way as me saying you, sh- yes. you should have asked for help. It's not a, it's not on you. No, it's it wasn't. Us. I, right, but you're right. The terminology wasn't there, and and I'm not experiencing that as as victim shaming. But they're good mm-hmm. questions, mm-hmm. and it wasn't on anybody's radar. And at the same time, my brother was the golden boy. He academically excelled. I did too, but I also had I had a lot of friends. And I don't even know why I like I didn't I didn't share with them. I also had a depressed mother at home. And I kind of hid that too. So well, I think I, sometimes you, you don't want to be seen in a certain light. We want to protect that. Right. You're going through also a period of identity formation. And right to put it out there that this is my identity and this is what I'm experiencing and this is what my home life looks like. That's not going to help you to fit in. No. No. No, and it would be the same as if it was an alcoholic family. No, just don't want to advertise that. Right. The wanting to have some normative experiences. I did not, I did not talk about it. And my brother, the golden boy part, it it just, it was, it was like how my family was structured. And the resentment towards me from my mother continued for years. We had an amazing healing before she died, which I'm incredibly grateful for. But Amy, bring me back to wherever we need to go. Okay. Well, we were really just talking about the emotional toll that it took on you as you were growing up. And I can tell clearly in telling your story that it still has its emotional resonance for you. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, about the long-term repercussions and how you've managed that, understood it, lived it? I mean, I think it took me a long time to develop my sense of self, whether trying to fit in, survive, be in touch with my own feelings and reality. As a therapist, I'm committed to always doing my own work. And so I've been doing my own work and a lot of trauma work for years. Um, I was sent to a therapist, though, interestingly, when I was a teenager, because I was actually a rebellious, obnoxious teenager who would say, fuck you to my mother and walk out the door in the snow and bare feet and walk a mile. Um, and I was sent to a therapist, and I never told the therapist. Never told the therapist what was going on at home. Do you remember how you felt about being sent to a therapist? 
yeah, I felt resentful. Like, this is not my problem. I'm being sent like I'm the problem, yeah. but yeah, fix me. Right. This and is exactly, yes, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No. Oh, the, no, I just wanted to kind of validate your experience. This is exactly what the participants in my study said, that for those of them who were in a way lucky enough to be sent to therapy, again, it was like a double-edged sword because you're being told that you're explicitly or implicitly that you're the problem. You're the one that needs to be fixed. And the, the good news is that hopefully a therapist can actually help you deal with yourself and your feelings, whether or not you revealed what was going on, they still have your anger to deal with and your upset and your rebellion and the ways, all the ways in which this is being played out. And so maybe that can be helpful, but the messaging is not helpful. And so one kind of undoes the other. It does. It really does. And also I was sent to a male therapist. Here I was, I was a teenager at that time, probably 15 so 15, 16, and sent to a male therapist where it seems like it'd be much more appropriate for me to see a female therapist at that age. And I didn't talk about any of this. The therapist did not have anyone in my family come. They probably talked to my, I'm sure talked to my parents or talked to my mother before. I didn't tell the therapist very much at all. Except I told him that after the therapy sessions, I went to, there was a grocery store nearby and I binged eat, I ate every time after therapy. I was stuffing those feelings. I was stuffing those feelings and I told him about it and he said, well, you're not fat. What? Yes. (laughs) You're not fat. What does that have to do with anything? Nothing. We know that. Uh, right? <laughs> we do know that. But we're uh, therapists it's, it's now. Really we know that now. That they don't know that. And I have to say, it's interesting because I, I don't, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I almost hear like a little self reflective blame or wonderment about yourself about why didn't I tell him what was going on at home or I should have. And I just want to say, again, that's not on you. That's on him. And this is why I think we're both so passionate about building awareness about sibling abuse in our society today, because it is incumbent on helping professionals to be able to know the questions that need to be asked to uncover this kind of thing. We're so focused on the parent-child relationship that we have to be able to explore the family dynamics as a whole, and obviously the sibling-siblings relationship. Because what a detriment to be going to some place or to someone that's supposed to be helping you understand the behavior that you're experiencing and also give you an outlet for that and not knowing how to uncover it. That's right. That's right. And that's why we, I'm so committed to bringing awareness to this invisible issue that impacts so many people. You know, once I became aware and once I began seeing, I began seeing it more and more in my practice. It's incredibly common. Incredibly. You know, it was, it was termed in, in the 70s, I think, right? As the most common form of family violence and still remains the most common form of family violence. So how is it that how, we... Right. Right? 
yet that we're still not addressing it. Well, I want to come back to that in a part two with you about how you saw it in your clinical practice and how that helped you to understand and come to terms with your own lived experience. That's next time, folks. You're going to have to tune back in. But I want to see if we can continue to understand through your experience how you were impacted by this as an adult. So part of my study, most of my study Mm -hmm. focused on the area of relatedness, particularly intimate relatedness. And I'm wondering if you've made those connections with how this earlier experience with your siblings still resonated, as you said, impacted your self-image, impacted your self-esteem, and now played out in the way that you approached, connected, related to others. One way that it not being aware you know, at the time, I it impacted following along, sort of following along in my life and getting married young, getting married where there was a dynamic of, again, kind of power over and where I walked on eggshells. So you repeated what you knew. I repeated what I knew mm-hmm. and it was familiar. Mm-hmm. And my job was to make everything okay, just mm-hmm. like I did as a kid. I'm just going to make, try to make everything okay. And my body's going to absorb this stress because walking on eggshells is really challenging. But I'm going to make everything okay. And I went along and I, I didn't speak up. I didn't have a voice. I didn't use my voice. I have since learned how to use my voice and found my voice. When I had children, and I feel this, I feel bad about that I have two children, that because I was afraid of, um, with my my husband's illness, if my husband woke up, that he, he he might be in a bad mood that I would kind of keep my son quiet and be more aggressive with my son that to this day I feel bad about to try to like keep the peace in this way that I feel I feel the sadness now mm. talking about it. You wanted to keep the storm from brewing. Yeah. And the storm continued to play out for a while in our family. I was the target of my husband. My son was the target of my husband because his energy was like super like talk, 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 energy, energy. And and in that sense, he was disruptive. He was disruptive. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but he wasn't disruptive. He right. was being a kid. And I did not protect him the way I would protect him now. And and then there are other incidents that involve my larger family and with his uncle, my brother, where I didn't use my voice enough and didn't protect my family from a mess that happened when I was about 50, which then that's when I began really waking up 
to the whole dynamic and I see, oh my God, it's not my son's role to be furious at his uncle. Where was I? It was my job. And it was my job earlier on. And I'm not, we've had, we've had healing conversations with my children and a lot of repair, but I, I own that, you know, I own that part. And that was that I did not have my voice. I didn't know how to use my voice. I felt stuck. I didn't know. I didn't know how to leave. That's Um, trauma. That is trauma. Okay. Okay. Yes. So I hope you have forgiving yourself because you did the best that you could have done given the tools that you did not have. And you had to develop those tools. And as you said now, you're in a completely different place. You've been able to validate that earlier experience of your children, your son in particular. And you're not who you were. You have found your voice. But that is a very poignant example of how we carry this earlier experience into our later relationships, intimate relationships with a partner. And now you're saying your children and really kind of replicating that experience, that dynamic. Yeah. Um, it's all you knew. It's all you knew. Yeah. Yep. I, I know. I know. And I do forgive myself. And, but I also take responsibility and I've learned and I grow. And as I always say, I'm going to be growing to my last breath. Absolutely. We all are. Yeah. But yes, I took what I knew. I repeated what I knew. And that's the impact. We can trace the impact all the way back. I think that you also give your children a gift by taking responsibility. A lot of parents aren't able to do that, not just parents of, as survivors of sibling abuse, but just any kind of limitation that we have as people and pass along to children, and they never get that validation. Very validating and helps to heal, helps the healing process for everybody involved. It does, yeah. And I, I said to my son, that wasn't your job. Mm-hmm. That was my job. And I let you down and you tell me whatever anger you have, please tell me. And he did. So you're also talking about having an experience with your husband that felt, as we're talking about, right, very reminiscent of your relationship with your sibling, kind of being this peacemaker, even though with your sibling, obviously, you can never figure out how to quite do that because it was so unpredictable. And with your husband, you too couldn't really figure it out because his moods might have been based on his physical condition and whatever he Mm -hmm. was going through. And you just try and constantly, as you said, walk on eggshells and prevent the storm from occurring, attempt to, but there's no way to really do that. So how how have you managed that sense of hypervigilance and that mm. need to people please in all types of other relationships as well? Good question. And <laughs> hypervigilance is the word. I think of hypervigilance as I developed antennas all the way 
right. all the way around. Right. Um, because I had to sense or try to intuit what was, was going on. How could I protect myself? That's your right. impulse. And to not be able to figure that out is terrifying. It is terrifying. And so your other part of your question, can you repeat that? Yeah, sure. Is just how do you carry that? How did you continue to carry that or 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 not into your relationship with other people? The hyper vigilance and the need to um people please and you know not create waves. I think I did that for a long time in some relationships. And then when I saw there were a there have been two, a couple of relationships where they were similar dynamics and where there was a power difference. And if I use the word narcissism, I began to see that I wasn't going to be, there was no way that I was going to be able to get through. And I ended those relationships. I saw it and I just began moving away out of my choice, my empowerment. And I'm very careful in, and I choose and gravitate to relationships that are authentic, mm-hmm. vulnerable, intimate, accepting. Like those are things that, uh, those are qualities that I value immensely. And I and, assume mutual, that are mutual. Oh, absolutely. Right. Mutual, uh, yeah. reciprocal. Right. Well, good for you for reaching that point and taking care of you. Because that's really what you're talking about, is that I don't have time or room in my life or energy in my life anymore for people who I have to be fearful of, um, who I have to worry about, you know, continuing to like me, whom I can be me. I want to be able to be me. Me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I need to be me. Yeah. And I need you to be you. Yeah. And I want to accept you as you and accept me as me. But you won't and accept you as you for, I'm not going to try and make you into something I need you to be. That's exactly. the struggle is I'm right. going to, I am going to have better antenna and find people who value me for me and whom I don't have to people please. And that is almost like a guiding star now mm. and something that I've developed over, it hasn't been, I don't know, the last 15 years. Of my growth, but I have to say too that out of trauma, and I and I also never knew what CPTSD felt like mm-hmm. until I was like fifty years old. I just have so much compassion for people, and and also see the growth that can come out of trauma, so, and. It doesn't make us broken. I'm not broken. I wouldn't be who I am without the depth and trauma. No, that's called traumatic that growth. Right? Yes. It's called yes. traumatic growth. Uh, it's this called, is the techni- yes. technical term. And I will say that I am so glad that you found that guiding star. You deserve Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. I love is- it. Oh, that's wonderful. I just want to say I'm so grateful, Anne, for having you on here, for sharing your story. I hope that it was helpful to you. And I hope that our listeners, whether they are 
victims, survivors, clinicians, or just people out there who can make better sense and understand the impact uh, of the sibling relationship. And we can spread awareness that this is a real phenomenon. And hopefully people can be more sensitized to those who have and are experiencing it so that we can prevent it, intervene, treat, and just be better to each other. Thank you for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. As hard as it was, I'm sure, to tell your story and to listen to your story because it's really emotional. Uh, I think that you did a service here. And uh, I hope so. Yeah. And I look yeah. forward to a second conversation where we can really get into your clinical practice and explore how you can use your experience to help others while not necessarily sharing your experience. We use our experience to right. help others, but also I'm, I'm very curious about how you learned about your experience as traumatic based on what you were seeing in clinical practice. So come back soon. And, I will, uh, and and I share your passion about <laughs> I know this you do very under recognized dynamic that is so harmful. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Thanks, thank Anne. you. Bye. Sibling abuse is real. It's important. If you're a professional or parent, keep your antenna up. If you're a victim or survivor, you are important. You matter. If you want help, tell a school social worker or mental health professional, or your physician. To learn more, you can find my published articles on my website at amymyersphd.org. That's amymyersphd.org. A-M-Y-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-H-D dot O-R-G. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?